Hello, everybody. What is today? Today is Wednesday, the 10th of August, 2016. This is the Promotional More Practice live chat here on MMA Fighting. Thank you so much for watching me. I realize the top of my head is cut off, but it's only because this chair sinks over the course of 90 minutes, which is how long this podcast is, where we get your best questions, comments, bitches, gripes, and smart remarks. Uh, best place to get those in is in MMAfighting.com's comment section. You can also tweet me um, at SBN Luke Thomas. You may also, uh, oh yeah, the comments are turned green, get priority, but not exclusivity, yada, 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 yada. Okay. Um, let's get to the chat. By the way, I just saw this. <clears throat> this might not mean much to you guys if you're not like a sports person, which is fine. I'm not here to uh, you know lecture anyone about it. Uh, John Saunders died at 61. Now, this is relevant for any number of reasons that the guy was uh, a founding board member of the Jimmy V Foundation, that he was an anchor on ESPN for, I think, 30 years or more. You see a lot of those guys at ESPN, they, you know, they're having an uh, exodus now, but um, I did some work for ESPN in a different career years ago. This must have been, ooh, this must have been not for ESPN, for a company that ESPN hired. Um, before I even got into MMA journalism, like well before. So this must have been almost four, 15 years ago. Um, and you find a lot of people who'd sit it for a very long time. But here's the thing. I, it's First of all, it's incredibly sad. Um, I don't know what he died from. I, I, I read some obituaries but or you know news reports, but they didn't say. Not soda. Artificial sweetener, but not soda. Um but if you guys ever watched the sports reporters on Sundays, it was hosted typically by John Saunders, at least of late. Um, that's a show that the MMA beat is built off of, that it's supposed to be like it's our own version of the sports reporters for MMA. And John Saunders was the host of the one for the sports reporters. So that's really uh, unbelievably sad. And uh, I don't know what he died of um, at 61. Terrible, really terrible. Sorry to hear that, you know. All right. Um, I see that the nuances of the racial debate as it relates to uh, controversial champions and the nuance of it is still lost on a vocal minority of uh, fans. Hopefully we don't have to wait into that too much today. Um, real quick, first question didn't turn green, so I will make it turn green. There we go. Uh, judo BJJ. Hey, hey, Luke, do you think judo in the Olympics is a nice alternative for BJJ? Uh, I mean, I think you mean nice alternative to BJJ. I, look, here's what I would say. The judo you see this year, and I think this was the last Olympics too. It just doesn't feel all that interesting because of, there's no leg attacks. And there's no Morote Gari. There's they really have eliminated virtually all the leg attacks. And there's trips, of course, um, but they don't. You can't like level change and grab the legs. So for me, there's a lot that's missing. Um, but yeah, like I, I, and I even tweeted about this yesterday, man. You go back and you watch some of these people. Like I had some friend who was watching judo with me, and he was like, "This is I don't know. I don't, I don't know what I'm looking at." I was like, "All right, first things first. Watch how they grip each other, okay? Watch how aggressively they grip. And what you're looking for is there's all different kinds of gripping sequences over the back and bottom of the lapel, but a, a common, a typical gripping 
scenario is one hand on the lapel and one hand on the sleeve. That is very, very common. It can be one side of the lapel versus the other side. It can be different grips on the sleeve. It can be what's called, uh, if you grab and bunch it up in your hand so that the wrist is below, it's called, many people call it a motorcycle or a pistol grip. You can take and then roll your fingers on the top of the, so if it's here, you roll your fingers in. It's called a, it's called a, um, a cat's paw grip. Um, there's all different, and there's more than that. There's a ton of grips you can use. And even in lapel, you see guys who will grab the lapel and they'll roll it, you know, with their knuckles. A lot of guys do that. Although you got to be careful because if you get, you know, if you get too loose, you can, you can get, you, you know, um, Galval was the king of that for a while, right? People would grip up his lapel and Jacare would do this too. Then they grab behind the elbow and push it into you and your whole wrist can get snapped. Um, but uh, oh, that's harder to do to judo people. I mean, but here's my point. The gripping in judo is violent, man, both in the tenacity of how they grip, how they grip break, the techniques they use to grip break. You see a lot of, frankly, basic grip breaking in BJJ because, one, a guy's going to pull guard pretty quickly. Or, um, you know, a common gripping scenario is you if, if someone has your lapel, you grab below like you're doing your own pistol grip on it underneath their arm, take the top of their hand, and uh, you pull down at an angle as you pull your back away at the opposite angle. So it's at an angle, at an angle, at the same time, right? Man, th that doesn't work against these guys <laughs> and ladies too. They grip with ferocity. So the first thing you want to pay attention to is just how incredible the gripping battles are and then the, the slapping over the back and trying to get a grip there either with the collar or sort of the, the top where the, where the gi bunches up along the back of the shoulder line, maybe where you might squat with a bar. Um, that was just blowing me away. But really, you got to give a ton of credit to Travis Stevens. Like, I'm not saying there's not a lot of guys in judo who have excellent nawaza. You can go back and look at a uh, technique talk that I did with Dave Camarillo. And he was talking about guys like Flavio Canto who have unbelievable ground games. It'd be really foolish to assume that they don't. However, I also think that the way in which Travis Stevens has sharpened his ground game combined with his already athletic judo prowess has really made him a force to be reckoned with. You know, he beat the guy to get into the semis with a Bernardo Faria over underpass, man. That's how he did it, you know. I don't know. I don't know that. I've, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there, that exists in judo, but the jiu-jitsu guys with that kind of pass are technically going to be, you know, in general, much more proficient with it. Um, and then he hit that bow and arrow choke, but he hit the bow and arrow choke in like a, trans, a rolling transition. He's nasty, man. He's not, he made a mistake in that gold medal match and just got Uchimata, and he, and he knew he made a mistake too. But, you know, he had the day of his life yesterday. I was really impressed by Travis Stevens, and I think what I, for me was, you know, is judo an alternative to jiu-jitsu? They're so different. Um, there's other things that I saw yesterday where there was this one female competitor. I can't remember where she was from. You'll notice that there'll be a lot of throws, and they can't get the other person's hip to turn over. Let's say they drop for a Sayunagi say Onagi and they can't get the other person to come all the way over so what winds up happening is they both kind of fall to the side and they land in turtle so what you see is there's a lot of judo attacks from turtle that's why Ronda Rossi's got a lot of those arm bars where one of her shins goes behind the head of her opponent and then the other one sort of rolls the other person over she's got a lot of those right because that turtle position they develop a lot of attacks from that I saw one woman yesterday I've never seen this actually um if someone's in turtle and they got really good base, it's actually hard to get a hook in. It's hard to roll them over. It's hard to get them on their hip, quite frankly. You got to like, you know, one common scenario is you bump into them till you feel it back and then you let it go. And then you, and then behind their hip, you pull them in a circle so you can get them least, least on a hip, you know, something to get them off their base. 
Um, I saw this woman yesterday. This was incredible. She took two hands as the person was turtled, grabbed their black belt, and just and she essentially just upright rode it whomp, straight into the air and then sunk her hooks in and then dove back down. First of all, you got to be strong as an ox to do something like that. And that's that's pretty nifty. Like judo is really athletic and aggressive and tough and hard nosed man we had a guy in our in our school once who was a member of the i think the 2008 um mongolian judo team didn't medal i think he placed you know somewhere eighth ninth tenth you know not one of the guys who was one of the better ones there but you know you make the mongolian judo team for the olympics you are no slouch and rolling with him is a nightmare he was only a purple belt at the time of jujitsu, and it was a nightmare to roll with him. Absolutely vicious. And his arm bars, they came out of nowhere, and they just hurt more. Like the structure of his body, you know, it felt like you were trying to, with your bare hands like this, just break a broomstick. It was just taut and tough and hard. He was, he was a nightmare, man, a complete nightmare. So for me, it's not alternatives necessarily, although you can see there are a lot of differences. But the real beauty for me is when you get someone like Travis Stevens who can put those elements together, you know, who's got phenomenal gripping and grip strength that can off-balance you. And then as you even try to get to your base, he goes one direction then jumps the other, and, and, he, and he's got attacks from his own guard. He can pass guard. He's got you know, rolling bow and arrow chokes. I mean, he, that, that to me is, that is like, that's where it's at, right? When you've got someone who's got that kind of athleticism and skill and timing, and yet that kind of, you know, over under pass is it's a timing pass, but it's a pressure pass. Like you have to create these conditions before, you know, for each step to work for the next one. And that's a patience thing. So, um, I, I, I'm thrilled for Travis Stevens, and I'm thrilled that people got to watch that yesterday, but that's what it was for me. Like, if you have never grip fought, it may mean nothing to you, you know, and I can understand that. But grip fighting is hard on your fingers. It's hard to do, and you'll know this. Anyone who's ever grip fought will tell you there'll be a, every once in a while you'll run into someone, and they will grip your lapel, and they will grip your sleeve, and there is F all you can do to get it off. And even those judo Olympians, you can see there was a couple of guys that had vicious grip strength and gripping strategy. Um, and you also saw, as I've said on this podcast before, whoever grips first is going to be, you know, you want to you be the dominant lead gripper. Um, so if you watch more judo, pay attention to the gripping strategies. See how they use the gripping to off balance or to throw themselves into something or to set up another grip or a lot of times they'll grip in a certain scenario to get you to grip. So then they regrip that, you know, there's a, just a lot of different ways in which gripping is, a, is, is effective. But the last thing I'd say about this is when you saw Travis Stevens with that bow and arrow choke, someone sent me like this example, like this no-gi bow and arrow choke. There's like no-gi baseball bat chokes and stuff like that too, but they don't ever work in MMA because it's just hard to pull it off, especially at an elite level. And you got those gloves. You know, a lot of times for some of these chokes, they have to be really precise with how your the, the blade of your elbow or your, so your wrist goes in. And I, I will say, you know, pride was crazy. And, I, you know, it was never going to last, I suppose, for any number of reasons. But part of me is kind of like, wouldn't it be cool if there were still some MMA with the gi? The things you could do, man, the things you could do. Now, you'd have to be really, you know, you have to enforce the rules pretty heavily about stalling or I'm not sure exactly how it would look in the modern era, but 
yeah, man, that's that's what I got my eye on. Like, I was just blown away by the, the the tenacity and the technique and the beauty of their of their gripping. It was it was unbelievable. All right, the featherweight division, Luke. The featherweight division is one of the deepest divisions out there, and it's currently filled with young, up and coming talent. Absolutely is. Fighters like Max Holloway, who's 24, Charles Oliveira, 25, Jair Rodriguez, 23, Brian Ortega, 25, Duho Choi, 25, Mirsad Bektich, 25, have all found a good deal of success as of late, and they all have the potential to be future title challengers. Or well, all of them, but some of them. What are your thoughts on these prospects, and given their abilities, which one do you think has the most promising future? Of all of them, I think the most promising is probably Max Holloway. You know, I don't know where, how far Mirsad Bektich is going to go, but obviously there's a lot of you know reason to have enthusiasm about him. Certainly Oliveira is still young enough to get better and better and better and better if he doesn't take too much more damage. Rodriguez, I think we have a lot of hope for, but as I mentioned the Monday Morning Analyst, I certainly think he's an incredibly talented guy. No doubt about it. Um, but someone with a really great... Uh, meat and potatoes game who can um, stay out of trouble early and then jam him late, I think is going to give him a lot of problems unless he changes things up a little bit. When he becomes a little bit more judicious with the way in which he throws, then I think you might see him uh, really be, sort of come to life against the better guys. Uh, Brian Ortega, obviously, I think very highly of, has an incredible guard. Still some issues to work out on the feet and with the wrestling. And I think with the overall general fight strategy. but. Um, but they're all pretty incredible. But for me, Max Holloway right now is the guy I've got my eye on. I, I just I think very highly of Max Holloway. I think his I, I really believe that when you're watching MMA and you're watching somebody who not only can make adjustments between rounds, but can make adjustments in the middle of a round, minute over minute, you're looking at somebody special. I think a lot of people take this for granted. And we've talked about this over and over and over again. Why did Ronda Rousey stand with Holly Holm? Look, partly there was probably some idea that she could just sort of bully her way into the kind of positions that she needed to be. But the people who were like, oh, well, she should have just gone, you know, into a different strategy. There, in terms of what she was prepared to do that night, there was no other territory for her to go. She had no place to adjust to. She couldn't get close enough. She doesn't really have knee pound takedowns. I'm sure she's got an okay double if she needs to use it. But as we saw, the doubles don't really work all that well in Holly Holm either. It's when you mix up things like the trips or um, you know something else when you get really tight on her. Um, so for me, you know, the ability to make adjustments, you just can't you can't under under undervalue how critical that is as a skill for an elite fighter if you want to be an elite fighter and you can't make adjustments you're going to be in trouble and i don't mean to like steadily get better over the course of the round although you know that implies some measure of adjustments i mean like noticeable ones where you completely remove someone's weapons in that sense i am not comparing the two in an overall way i'm not but what i'm about to say i, I believe holds some degree of merit in terms of the ability not merely to make adjustments, but the kind of adjustments that remove a ton of the weaponry of their opposition. I believe that Holloway and Mayweather share some similarities. Now, Mayweather has it at a much more elite level. He takes away virtually all 
of someone's weapons, and he does it over the course of round over round over round over round. Holloway, I think, is still figuring that out. But there's a similar dynamic going on between the two where they're really sort of minding their P's and Q's. They have a ton of just uh, muscle memory, defensiveness. They have they have strict defensive responsibility. They're hard to hurt. They can do everything should they need to. They can play the game in, out, up, down, top, bottom. Um, but what really sets them apart is as the seconds tick by, they are slowly but surely taking away weapons from you. Not every time, not all the time. Um, but that's what they're really good at. And and for me, you get a guy like Holloway who can do that. You can only do that if you have a comprehensively um, deep game. You can only make adjustments if you have a portion of your game to go to. If you have the ability to alter your game in real time, it's because your game is in a web of complex interrelated skills that you have clean access to very good fighters elite fighters often do not have very much of that holloway has got a lot of that so there's some other things you can say about holloway that maybe would be you know knocks on him but one of the really strong things about max holloway is his ability to make adjustments like that he's reading you reading you reading you adjusting 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 and by the 10th minute if it's still going there and because they usually do since um, he's willing to let that fight play out so he can read and make adjustments on you. Um, the fight looks very different. And by that point, he's probably settled into, settled into some kind of groove and beginning to really hurt you quite quite badly. And I like that a lot. But there's other reasons to like these other guys. As I mentioned, Brian Ortega, probably one of the best guards at featherweight, if not in the UFC. Jair Rodriguez, an incredible, unpredictable talent. Duho Choi, a striking phenom. Big power, great speed, presence in the pocket. Fearless, Mirsad Bektic, dogged, um, great takedowns, great top pressure, good passing. Um, and then Charles Oliveira, obviously, you know, one of the best submission guys in the UFC. So to your point, Featherweight's great and all those things. I got my eye a little bit more on Max Holloway than some of the other ones. But MMA's crazy. We'll see how they develop. As you mentioned, they're all the oldest one is 25. I mean, we'll see how they do. True false. By insulating the excuse, correction. True false. By insulting the WWE, Conor McGregor will n- will make more money from pay-per-view sales because of the pro wrestling fans who buy 202 to see him lose. Very little of that, but maybe some. A featherweight fighter with solid fundamentals will likely expose the holes in Yair Rodriguez's flashy style. A little bit more than just solid fundamentals. It's not a matter of being that he lacks fundamentals and he's just wild. I mean, there is a rhythm and a sophistication to Rodriguez's game. But I think an elite fighter, and that's sort of what we're talking about here, right? Like, we're not, I don't think any old Joe Schmo can beat him, but maybe someone on the more elite end who has really great timing in that regard and, and good distance and good, and good defensive responsibilities. Like Max Holloway, I think they would give him a lot of problems. Uh, for now, let's see how he develops. Uh, RDA and Ferguson would be wise to have their training camps in Mexico to avoid the risk of fatigue during their fight. If they can afford it, this is not some automatic thing. Mexico City is, uh, you know, it's relatively cheap compared to some American cities. It's not, it's not necessarily all that cheap um, to fly. I mean, where are you going to train? You got to bring all your training people with you. Where are you going to do? You got to rent facilities. Like, how are you going to do that? That's not, that's not so easy. Uh, Chris Weidman will at some point become a two-time middleweight champion. Sure, why not? 
I mean, can you really say someone's not going to be a champion anymore? Uh, Teruto Ishihara has probably hit on Paige Van Zant at least once. Sure. Now, someone makes a good point. Someone says Mexico doesn't own high altitude. This is true. Perhaps a better question, should RDA and Ferguson train at high altitude? It doesn't have to be Mexico City, just similar conditions. That might, might, that might be more doable, but there's a couple of problems with that. As um, uh, I'll give a shout-out to Rodrigo Del Campo, uh, who is a writer for... Um, in Mexico, Mexico City, I believe. And he has mentioned that the pollution can make people sick if they're not accustomed to it when they first go. That's one problem. So you would have to be there longer to get over it. If you're just there for a few days, it, it, it may impact your training while you're there. You would need time to get sort of adjusted to it. That's one problem. The other problem is, you know, you, where are you going to go? You can go to Denver, you can go to Big Bear. How high is Big Bear in the air? Denver is about 5,200 feet, something like that. So the elevation of Big Bear is 6,700. Let's see Denver elevation. Denver is 56.9. Mexico City, 7,300. So it's substantially higher because once you get up that high, every little bit matters. How high is Bogota? Bogota is high as hell. 8,600 for Bogota. I, I got... I lost my breath getting off the plane in Bogota. What about um, La Paz? Oof, La Paz is 13,000 feet. I mean, are you ever going to see an MMA event, like a UFC event in La Paz? Well, Bolivia is a poor country anyway. But anyway, um, you get the idea. So I don't think it would hurt and maybe more doable but it doesn't necessarily properly address all the problems that you have. Um, so there you go. By the way, let me just ask a question. And I, you're going to be like, I'm offended. I'm not offended. I just don't care. I really, truly don't care. I don't care. I don't care. But I am curious. Like, why is Teruto Ishihara allowed to call women bitches? <laughs> like, I, I, I think it's funny and somehow charming, but... Like, if another, if Donald Cerrone was doing this, you'd be like, dude, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> you can't call women bitches. And then here comes Ishihara, and you're like, yeah, I love my bitches. And I'm just wondering where there's the, the consistency there. Like, there's a little bit of Ishihara being treated like a 1980s um, stock Asian character, like exchange student in movies, where they're, they have a loose grasp of the language and the culture. And as they get immersed, and they pick up these words, we like sort of chuckle at it. Um, and I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not asking him to stop. I don't care. I'm not writing any articles about it. Trust me. It's not one of those things that I'm going to lose any sleep over. But every time he does it, I'm like, okay. All right. When does size matter? A lot of talk this week about whether McGregor could beat a WWE guy in a street fight. Okay. I mean, am I really going to read this question? Seriously? Who would win a dinosaur or a or a or a gremlin? The only question that ever matters is who would win, a gorilla or a bear. Remember that. Uh, obviously, McGregor is a vastly superior combat athlete. Yeah, but at what point does the size of a reasonably athletic opponent become too much for an MMA fighter's skills? Jesus, that's a really very, very difficult question to answer. I mean, um, 
for someone like McGregor who's trained and um, powerful, if it's a street fight, you know, uh, he could probably hurt a lot of guys above his weight class with a series of punches. In an MMA fight, a similar thing. Um, at some point, someone's going to be – I don't know how to answer this question. I mean, you know, you're asking uh, – if you take a smaller but skilled athletic fighter versus a monstrously huge, unskilled, semi-athletic, but very, very large person, and you put them in two different contexts, street fight, MMA fight, like how much of a gap can you have before the smaller person who's more skilled loses all their advantages? That's going to vary greatly on all the scenarios and um, the smaller and bigger fighters themselves. I don't know that there's really any, any one answer to that, you know. Uh, here's what I would encourage you to do. I would not spend a lot of time thinking about could Conor McGregor beat a WWE wrestler in a street fight. This is likely to be a scenario that um, never happens. In fact, I would argue Mayweather versus McGregor is probably more likely than that. This is you have each day when your eyes open in the morning. Um, if you are religious, then you say sort of the good Lord blessed you, or maybe it's just sort of the way in which, um, I, I don't know how you treat your day, but every time you open your eyeballs, you have a hundred attention dollars to spend. That's it. At the end of that day, when you go to sleep, it doesn't matter how you use them, they're gone. Now you get a new set of dollars, you get a new, you get a new hundred dollars in the morning, but that one's gone. How are you going to choose to spend it? I would argue that spending attention dollars mulling over the the idea of not, the, the question is interesting about what could be the difference in and how size affects a fight but it's very very difficult to answer um but thinking about specifically conor mcgregor versus a wwe fighter in a street fight that seems to me arguably the most monumental waste of time imaginable now that is just me um but I would humbly submit to you on the things that are a waste of time, not waste of time. Uh, the, that scenario is hard to argue, not a waste of time. Uh, now, the question about size, it really, I, I suppose it depends. The way in which we construct weight classes is we try not to have too much distance between them. We try to imagine a place where a lot of guys can get to so that it has a reasonable degree of competitiveness. Um and where people naturally sort of fall along those lines. And that winds up being, at least for elite competitive sports, somewhere between six to seven to 10 pounds or more. Um, somewhere in that seven to 15 pound or 20 pound range, if you want to take into account MMA. That's really where these sort of intervals come into play. That's that's how we do it. That's for elite competitive sports among two elite competitors of relatively similar size. Once the size matters more, the closer the skill level. We were talking about a world champion fighter losing to people who have never trained in combat sports just because they are big. Give your head a shake. I wreck this just to see if Luke's head explodes when answering if they can remain rational or if he can remain rational. Well, I tried to do both. My head did not explode, but it certainly is a uh, an interesting question. There is a limit. There is a limit, right? I mean, you can imagine um, somebody very large giving Demetrius Johnson problems, potentially. But I can also imagine a scenario where Demetrius Johnson beats the brakes off of them. I mean, I think it would have to be a really substantial difference uh, 
if you have someone very skilled. Recall that you know the scenario is very weird, but you mentioned a street fight. Here's a perfect example. Do you remember when Roger Huerta beat the, I mean, the dog S out of that uh, lineman from the University of Texas, the one who hit that woman? And Roger Huerta, I mean, Roger Huerta, if he had wanted to, could have beat him within an inch of his stupid life. Do you remember that? And this was a guy who I think briefly played for the Falcons. Like he was, by American standards, a a pretty decent football player, uh, and he was well over three hundred pounds. And I don't know if he was drinking. I don't know. I don't know exactly all the specifics. It's a little hazy. But if you're talking about street fight scenarios where there's a lot of unknowns, sort of moving all at once, um, Roger Huerta, who washed out of UFC and Bellator, crushed that dude. And, and arguably could have taken his life if he had wanted to. So take that for what it's worth. What do you think the judo guy getting beaten up by the thief in Rio says about the effectiveness in a street fight? Nothing. How about the other thief who got shot because he attacked... I think was it the the Russian consul who was there who knew jujitsu and uh, shot the thief, took the to the thief's gun, dragged him down the block, and shot him. Uh, I don't think it means much. Good question. Uh, I almost mispronounced his name, so please forgive me. Ning Guanzhou, the Chinese gentleman. Hey Luke, do you think Ning Guanzhou got? got off lucky by testing positive for clenbuterol without punishment. Cyclists have used the same excuse in the past, but got punished anyway, like Alberto Contador, who ended up losing his Tour de France title. I'm not I'm not entirely familiar with uh, the specifics of Alberto Contador's situation, but this is one that has been well-documented recently. You'll recall the lineman, the defensive lineman for the Houston Texans, whose name escapes me. Um, he got a reprieve from the NFL as a consequence of this, I believe uh, there were a bunch of Mexican soccer players. And I want to say, if not Eric Morales, somebody else, this is a well-documented problem in Mexico. Um, you know, tells you a lot about agribusiness and agri-farming, but, um, but yes, they are injecting these animals with so much hormones and a variety of other substances uh, that even through cooking, and you know the butchering process it's still being ingested enough to be detected in your body you should think about that in terms of where you buy your meat if you're able to make some choices about that um but it's real it's been documented uh and and this is one of the ones i think you saw absolutely got right um and i'm glad but you know we, we've now seen people test positive in ways that are detectable for drinking tap water in the case of that gymnast um and now you have this guy for the clenbuterol for um, eating beef. Um, you know, <laughs> the amount of we, the amount to which we poison ourselves through ordinary means uh, over time should should every, make everyone pause for a moment. So, was asking about math to replace subjective rankings. You know, uh, in other words, sort of, um, would there be a difference between having cardinal numbers versus ordinal numbers for ranking? 
I don't think that we need to do that. I think the subjectivity, as long as it's relative to each other, is fine. I Everyone's got this big problem with rankings anymore, and I feel like the controversy about it has gone away. We've sort of normalized how bad they are, and it doesn't seem to have affected the sport in an overly negative way. Um, I think most observers don't use the rankings all that much for identifying talent or you know making a name for talent. Like, oh, this guy's ranked third. Uh, and we don't, as the hardcore community, necessarily take those numbers in any way close to gospel. Um, it, they do serve a purpose in the sense that UFC matchmakers appear to be matching guys who are close in numbers. So they're, I'm not saying that they're otherwise worthless, but I think hemming and hawing about you know where guys are, while not a fruitless exercise, uh, we probably can dial it back a little bit, you know. Middleweight in the meantime. Hey, Luke, obviously Michael Bisping is going to be fighting Dan Henderson, which puts somewhat of a bottleneck at the top of the middleweight division. How do you think the top four should play out while this fight is going forward? I feel that Wyman, Rockhold, Souza, and Romero could all rightfully fight for the belt right now, but will likely want need to fight in the meantime. Would you match them up against one another? If so, how would you match them up? Is it difficult to create a number one contender in the situation when Henderson could win, retire, and then you need to match up for the vacant middleweight title? So if Henderson wins, then you create a round robin. Or not a round robin, but sort of an informal tournament. Um, if he doesn't win and Bisping wins, then I think you start to begin to create interesting matchups for him. Um, but, you know, you got Rockhold coming off a loss, Weidman coming off of a loss, uh, Romero coming off of the win, but the controversial one. And then Jacare coming off of one. So maybe you match up Romero and Jacare with Rockhold and Weidman. Maybe you put those two back together again. Maybe make a series of rematches. I don't think it matters too, too much. But if Bisping wins, then you're definitely going to want to have somebody waiting in the wings um, is either a legitimate top contender or, uh, or more preferably, I should say, a legitimate top contender who's a name. And that's going to sort of depend on how you match that up. Swear to God, it sounds like someone is walking on my roof. I don't know. I'm about to be robbed, y'all. Rio, come for the Olympics. Stay in the hospital to recover from the robbery. Look, I don't know what worldview a lot of you guys have. Um, I've been robbed. I've been mugged all the times I've been mugged. It's been here in the United States. It's never been overseas because I don't travel like an idiot. Um, I've traveled to Asia, Africa, um, South America, um, Europe. I mean, you name it. I've, I've, I've been lucky to be around. I've never had an issue. Not to say I won't, but never really had one of a serious one anyway. Um, I would go to Rio tomorrow. And not think twice about it. I, I think a lot of this is just a lot of, um, I think Americans generally have a very insulated worldview. They are reluctant to travel to foreign places for reasons that remain a mystery to me. Um, and they tend to project the better parts of America ahead of rational thought and not realize that certainly there are risks associated with traveling to Rio. Believe me, I am, I am 
conscious of that. But I, it, they are not so substantial that they would prevent me from going. I mean, this is not Bacara Market or something like that. Um, Rio is an awesome place. Brazil is a beautiful country. Like any other place, you have to take precautions as you travel, and there are no guarantees. But I would travel instantly to Rio. It's a phenomenal place. Um, Dexa follow-up. Hey, Luke, just following up on my Dexa question, as someone had asked a follow-up last week. Number one, availability. There seemed to be a concern of access. Dexas are available almost everywhere now as they are used to screen osteoporosis. Plus, fighters would need them very infrequently unless they are trying to change weight classes by adding or dropping muscle mass. Two, radiation. This would naturally seem a big concern, but because of how they work, the radiation is almost negligible. The amount of radiation from a DEXA is around the same as eating four bananas worth of potassium and is less radiation than we get from every day just from living life. I would love to hear more of your thoughts on this. I don't know what more I can add uh, to this. Someone says, I'm a current medical student and we just discussed DEXA scans. They are widely available even in primary care offices and the radiation is very, very low as you stated as mentioned. So I figured I would confirm that for others seeing this. I don't know much about the DEXA scan other than what you guys have told me. This is not an area of expertise at all, um, but it seems like it's an interesting idea. I don't know why the UFC doesn't do it. Um, perhaps this is something, given some time, I can follow up with them to see if it's uh, uh, there's some kind of reason why they have or maybe they intend to or something like that. But I appreciate you guys bringing it up. It's an interesting point. It's not one I ever would have considered, and um, I'm glad you're, you're banging the drum on this. Uh, upcoming Saturday. Hey, Luke, what will you be doing this upcoming Saturday since it is the last free Saturday without a UFC event in a while? Ooh. Saturday is uh, bench press day. So I'll do that. I will go bench press. Heavy, heavy weight. Um, with my accessory work. And then what will I do? I'll probably get blind drunk and fall in a corner. All right. Josh Rosenthal, any word as far as a release date on the MMA ref who turned out to be a weed kingpin? He's been in jail for a while now. No, he is out. He has been out for a while now. Would love to see an in-depth story done on this, or maybe you know he already has one been written. Hopefully this dude can continue to ref MMA bouts when he gets out. He was an excellent ref, and God knows the sport could use more of those. Let me wreck this so it turns green, and it does. Um, he is out. He has been out for a while, and I have made a number of attempts to reach out to him. He will not respond, at least not to me. I'm sure he will eventually respond to someone. I also can confirm, although I can't say any more than this, I can confirm that he is trying. He, I should say this. He has made overtures that signal that he is interested in potentially refing again. And here's what I would say. I don't know what exactly the holdup is. I don't know how far along in the process he is of trying to do this. Um, I don't know exactly how many states this is an attempt on his part. I don't. I can't confirm any of those things. I don't know. But I would hope that they allow him to do this. I completely agree. He is an excellent ref. The weed kingpin thing is certainly not a great look. Um, perhaps they're waiting for him to be off parole. That's a possibility, right? Having a referee on parole kind of is a bit of a weird look for a commission. I can see why there would be some concerns about that, although I don't know that to be the case. But you get the idea. Um, I know that he has, I've been told by some folks in the know that he has made some gestures about whether it's possible he can get back in there. And any state in their right mind uh, 
um, I think given some some conditions, of course, um, would be wise to take him up on that. MMA needs him. He obviously he's made some mistakes before, but he's made a lot of excellent calls, and I think he would be a tremendous asset to any commission. <clears throat> we generally accept that cardio is a very difficult attribute to improve. And it's a combination of multiple elements, which is why people generally question how long can Nunes or, or Nunez or Johnson go in fights. Yet with McGregor, despite seeming to start to gas out both against Mendez and especially Diaz in the second round, there seems to be this assumption that he should be able to, be, to better control his cardio and all that breaking is to a degree mental. So out of curiosity, and this is in no way meant to, as a slam against the man, where does the faith in McGregor's cardio come from? Well, he's gone. I mean, remember, he went three rounds with Holloway with a torn ACL. You know, it's not like he can't go longer than he, we've seen him go. Now, we've never seen him in a, in a you know, um, in the UFC in a fifth round or anything like that. Let me see his record. Ah. Question 10 WWE wrestlers that would beat Conor McGregor. That is the saddest article I've ever seen in my life. Whoever wrote that literally is a sad person. Let's see. So he went three with Holloway. That's it. But we've just seen him better manage the, you know, even second round cardio before. Um, Chad Mendez, he had a really terrible injury. Uh, Dennis Seaver, he never took his foot off the gas. Um, the Dave Hill fight at Cage Warriors. Um, I don't think there's any evidence without us. Well, a little bit later in the round, I, there's enough evidence to conclude that he can probably go longer than he did in that Diaz fight in a way that is in keeping with, um, you know, a, a good pace and high professional standards that we've seen from him. So, but it is an interesting question. Like, how would he look in the fourth and fifth round? We don't know. It's something to keep your eye on. So, I think it's a very smart question. It's a very observant one. I think the point is that we have already reasons to believe he can go a full three, no problem. But at the same time, uh, maybe there is a question about how much more he has beyond that. Not an answer, a question. For anything else, I assume you had a blast with uh, Lily King's post-victory comments on certain athletes. Yeah, I saw that. And also, these games might be a mess behind the screen, but they are certainly delivering on the entertainment front. Then out of curiosity, what has been the most impressive Olympic moments so far for you? And which events are you most looking forward to? Okay. Um, so the Olympics are cool because, although Bill Murray, you guys see Bill Murray, I think but it was a real tweet from him. Uh, Bill Murray apparently had a tweet that was like, every Olympic event should also be have a competitor that's an average person just for like reference, which is kind of a very funny idea. Um, how about the American women gym, gymnastics team? I mean, golly. Did you all see Raceman's, uh, Ali Raceman's tumbling? Um, not even sequence last night. Routine? The floor routine? I mean, it, I don't even know what to say about it. Athletic to a degree that is hard to describe. Simone Biles, of course, is incredible. And that whole team, Michael Phelps out there doing this number last night. Did y'all see that in the closed face? 
Love that. Obviously, Katie Ledecky's been on fire. And I'm going to mostly name Americans because we mostly see what the Americans are up to. Um, the uh, women's beach volleyball team for the Americas has been pretty good. Who are some like other athletes I've seen from other countries that have been really impressive? Um, obviously, the Georgian who beat Travis Stevens was you know on fire yesterday. Um, uh, the the Brazilian who beat Gerby from Israel in judo. For not beat her by Epon too. Sayonagi rolled into it, I think. Incredible. Um, i trying to think of some other ones I've watched. I watched the uh, Olympic men's basketball team. Oh, Colombia yesterday. First of all, uh, Oscar Figueroa. This dude clean and jerked 176 kilos at 62 kilos himself. That is insane to think about. Uh, and also, they, uh, they tied the U.S. women's team 2-2 yesterday. I'll tell you who's underperforming. How about the Brazilian men's soccer team? You can't put goals up on Iraq, Iraq, I should say, and South Africa. Y'all suck. Um, ooh, how about this? The rugby has been phenomenal addition, I feel like, to the Olympics. Uh, the Argentinian team beat the Americans yesterday in a close game, but the Panthers are awesome. Um Obviously, the All Blacks had a little bit of struggles yesterday, but there's, I mean, you know, we know about the full rugby side, how good they are. Uh, Y'all see, oh, God, what was his name? Tua Sova from Fiji. This dude mowed down uh, Josua Tui Sova. Holy crap. Did y'all see one of his tries that he scored yesterday? Literally stiff-armed, but not like stiff-armed and like the guys run into him and then they kind of fall. No, no, like he just shoved them down. He is... 238 pounds at 5'11". It's like trying to tackle a, a washing machine or something. Uh, this was unbelievable what he did. He's been incredible to watch. Um, what else have I seen? I saw a South, Af a South Korean kid at archery who was phenomenal. Uh, I'm trying to think of anything else I've seen that's been really sort of took my breath away. No, but Josua Tuisova. Woo! Or Josua, however you pronounce his name properly. He is. He he caught my attention with that. That was that was a beast of a run. This is my point. Everyone's panning Rio. It's like everyone who's pan. I saw these guys. I love in the morning. I have nothing but love for them. But they were like talking about you know Rio being overrun with capybaras on the golf course. Like total nonsense. There's just a lot of fear of travel of foreign countries. Everyone calls Brazil third world, and certainly there are parts of Brazil that are third world. Uh, obviously, the favelas uh, would qualify as that, but the rest of Rio is not. That's just not true. Um, um, it's not a overall a third world country by any stretch of the imagination. That is simply not true, although there are parts of it that are. But you can go to Brazil and have a wonderful time and enjoy um, all the creature comforts of the life you enjoy here um, without a whole lot of difficulty, including the safety as well. So for me, I feel like there's just been a lot of this myopia about Brazil, about Rio, there are problems to be noted. Of course, if you're big into the anti-doping world, you probably have an issue with how the IOC handled the Russian athletes. Uh, obviously, the um, the Olympic Village has tons of problems, and we can go on from there. This is not an error-free endeavor. But as a fan watching from afar, it feels spectacular to me. I really enjoy it. I love learning about the new sports. Um, and, you know... <laughs> the Americans dominate Summer Olympics, baby. So it's a great time to be an American. USA. USA.
What is the liquid that forms on top of my yogurt every time I open the container? Um, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's a great question, though. No, I do not have a military haircut. I went to a place. That's a good haircut. I went to a place called uh, Hell's Bottom here in uh, Washington, D.C. You can Google it. And uh, it's a little bit hipster. I only went there because the lady who normally cuts my hair is out of town. So it was a bit of a, I was groping for something, but she knew one of the people there. So I went there and got a temporary one. But this is not, I mean, I guess it would qualify as a military haircut, but it's not designed to be. By the way, I saw a lot of people had, uh, they liked the Jason Bourne movie review. I literally got email after email from you guys being like, go see Suicide Squad so you can take a dump on it. Um, I'm not opposed to doing that, but I'm not going to go out of my way to do that. But if you like the Jason Bourne review, um, thank you for liking it and watching it. I appreciate it. It is the worst movie ever made. And I hope that everyone involved in that loses their careers. All right. Uh, the women's bantamweight division. I've been playing with this idea for a while, and I'm not sure if I can articulate it without sounding sexist. Well, here's my old college try. All right, let's give it a go. Do you think that the women's bantamweight title is changing hands because most every top lady except Misha has only one form of the game in which they can win? Nunes can blitz with strikes. Holly can decision without boxing. Pena can grind you. A lot has been made of the progress of women's MMA recently. Maybe it's time to look at them more, more objectively. I think there's a little bit to that that you do see a lot of the competitors with more hyper strengths. And so it becomes these uh, very, it's always styles make fights, right? It's always the case, but it's in a, in a hyper context, a little bit of women's band somewhere and things, a little bit of that, but it's really not fair either because Shevchenko, she's got a little bit of ground, some takedowns, and obviously she can bang you out on the feet. Uh, Misha Tate has a little bit of striking, but obviously she, you know, she has obviously much more concentrated ability on the ground. But, you know, who'd you mention before? You mentioned Nunes can blitz. Nunes has great jujitsu and awesome ground and pound and decent takedowns too, so that's not really fair either. I, I, I see what you're saying, the truth to it, that this comprehensive well-roundedness is absent. So when you get these matchups like Tate, who can't outbox home, but once she gets home to the ground, she only needed two takedowns to get, something going or in the case of Rousey who has this incredible judo and takedowns but she has no striking so in the case of someone like Holmes she was able to just chew her up there is a little bit to that for sure but I think the newer generation of these women's uh fighters are you're seeing a lot less of that and even the current crop can do a lot more than you might think they could who is the worst champion at tough contender ducking Dominic Cruz ducking Dillashaw. He just fought Dillashaw. And their first fight was ridiculously close. He already got his money fight with Faber. That's not a money fight. It's hard to see where he could get another. Tyron Woodley, who's ducking Wonderboy and calling out Nick Diaz. The, the GSP callout is fair enough, but now he's doubling down on his argument. Okay. Michael Bisping ducking the four obvious next best guys to fight Old Man Henderson. That's, the, that's UFC's idea. That's not his idea. So I guess according to the, the logic provided to me in this example i would say woodley but as you guys know i have a different perspective on that so um john jones now that he's been removed from the rankings has he been stripped of his interim belt i believe so yes also any updates on your side about his situation none none um i've spoken to some people close to him about it and they're just very much in the information and argument collection phase 
Future for Frankie. Oh, we've talked about this. I think you should go try 135. I really do. 155, I think it's just too far advanced now for him. 145, obviously he's very competitive with everyone but the top guy. Top two guys, maybe. We'll see how things go. Um, I think he'd be very competitive at 135. But I still believe, I still fundamentally believe, and I had Eddie Alvarez on my show on Monday and we talked about this. I still fundamentally believe that the kind of fight that Conor McGregor would face with Frankie Edgar is in every way different than the one he would face with Jose Aldo. I really, truly believe that. And I think that that fight should have happened and needs to happen at some point. Um, I, I just feel like if you really want a more complete test of the full-on game of Conor McGregor, Frankie Edgar's your guy. And Frankie Edgar can't match up well enough with Jose Aldo, and Jose Aldo will see how he does potentially in a rematch with with Conor McGregor. But um, and perhaps another area where styles make fights. But I do believe that it would be a completely different fight with Frankie Edgar. Um, Jesus, there's a bunch of these. I can give these a few a few comments. These are good questions, but there's just a lot of them. Uh, okay, this is one question and a bunch of questions built into it. Uh, what does Viacom do in light of the UFC takeover by WME? I don't think they do much. What does CAA, Creative Arts Artists Agency, do concerning its assets in light of the UFC takeover? Good question. We'll just have to see. Um, you know, these are competing agencies. I don't know that WME would get in the way of a CAA fighter who was on the rise if that were to happen. Um, cutting off their own nose to spite their face, but we'll just we'll have to see. I don't. It's a really really great question, and I don't know. Uh, given Joe Rogan's outspokenness and relationship with the fighters and the fans, how dangerous would his potential eventual departure be? Not dangerous at all. Uh, it is inevitable, and they are feathering the bed for the replacement. Seems like Brian Stan might get that nod. Somebody else, maybe I don't know, but uh, I think it'll be okay. I think it'll be okay. He's done great, obviously, and important things for mixed martial arts. But um, it'll it'll be okay. Uh, let's see. Tyron Woodley is smart in challenging GSP or Nick Diaz in regards to making a big money fight, but has he got the strategy wrong by being so transparent before he's established himself in the public's mind as someone who's earned the right to pick his opponents? Sure. I mean, I think the way he went about it was really, really rough, you know, um, and there was, you know, it, it, it didn't take seriously the amount of enthusiasm that was building for Wonder Boy. No doubt about it, right? I mean, a lot of people were like saying when Woodley when Woodley got the title shot that it should have gone to uh, wonder boy. So he was already dealing with that environment to come around and like, uh, you know, a curveball named Nick Diaz. Yeah. It definitely rubs some people the wrong way. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Right. And then I mentioned before on the MMA beat to then do it minutes after you've won with wonder boy talking to you on TV. It, 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 you know, that is a very rough ride. Uh, no Vaseline, just imagine a little bit of gasoline is what that is. So, all right. I wonder if the WME IPO is good or bad for the UFC. Great question. Would an IPO change UFC in a negative way? I don't know. You'd have a lot more information about their financials. I'm not sure to what the full extent of that would be, but there would clearly be a lot more to sort of pour over and evaluate. Um, I don't know. If these are profoundly important questions. So he asks, 
you know, pressuring the company to worry more about quarterly results versus long-term results? Would we be getting more Bisping versus Hendo and less spending money on drug testing, lobbying, New York, and global expansion? It's a great question. It's a really great question. And it's just impossible to know at this juncture, you know. Hey there. Mark Ramondi had an idea to put a strawweight title fight as the main event the day before Big 205. I guess little he realized that 11 of November is Polish Independence Day, which makes the idea even better. What do you think? And also, how much of a chance do you give this to KK? Um, Kovalkiewicz, I think, can do okay against Janjacek. And look, we've seen champions lose, so who knows? You know, Maybe she maybe she bodies her in a clinch. I don't know. But I would lean Janjacek. I think most of you probably would as well. Um, I love that idea. Marco Money's got a great idea. The question is where you put it, because I don't think you want to put it in Madison Square Garden. You want that first one to be there. Do you do it in New Jersey? You know, uh, uh, Tomas Adamic, who's Polish, uh, has done a number of fights at the Prudential Center. And those, I mean, the Polish come out ready to rock in that audience. So you could do that. Maybe you do want the Barclays Arena in uh, the Barclays Center, I believe it's called, in Brooklyn. You can do that as well. But I like that idea. I like that idea a lot. The only catch i would put on it is you got to save the real msg debut for uh 205 itself but otherwise um yeah two thumbs up one hitter quitter luke what are your thoughts on the interview given by hendo on the hour the mma hour with ariel hawani where he more or less confirmed he is done after his fight with bisping are the ufc setting themselves up for the fall making this match in the first place. It certainly carries some risk, but apparently what Henderson said was, what the hell? Someone says the solution to training in Mexico City is to train in Flagstaff, Arizona, and Sedona, Arizona. That is not the solution. I mean, I, I'm not saying it wouldn't have some benefits, but that is not the solution. Um, Jesus Christ. By the way, I saw the CM Punk first episode of, what's it called? Let's see. What is this thing called? The Evolution of Punk, The Ground Up. Took everything I had not to vomit. Uh, so back to Bisping Henderson. Here's what Henderson basically said. He was like, look, the contract has more than one fight on it. It's got multiple fights on it, maybe three or four, maybe more. Apparently, as what Henderson said was, Dana just doesn't believe him. That if Henderson wins, he's done. Henderson's like, no, no, trust me, I'm done. Dana seems to think that they could corral him into another fight. So that's where that comes from. They've got a contract where they can do more if they want. It is not a one-fight deal. And I think Dana White apparently believes that should Henderson win, he'll be able to get corralled into some kind of a rematch or some other fight, you know. Um, yeah. What's the question? My Twitter is blowing up. What are you all doing? Someone says, if you're going to do Yoani and Jacek versus uh, Karolina Kovalkiewicz in America, do it in Chicago. Chicago would be better, but I'm telling you, if you, I mean, what was that fight that like, there was like, so many Polish people? It was uh, Tomas Adamic versus Steve Cunningham, I believe. When was that? When was that? That was a crazy... I mean, I, re I distinctly remember the red and white in the audience being everywhere. Um, it was crazy. It was a while ago. Let me look up his record here. 
That was in uh, 2008. And he lost to Adamic. Yeah, I mean, you could do a bunch of these. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it wouldn't be better in Chicago, but it would be just fine in New York, honestly. It would be just fine. Let's see. Luke, what did you take on the Ben Saunders situation? I barely had a chance to read up on that. I've had a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. By the way, the t-shirt thing is moving forward. Um, ooh, question about Real Madrid. Can't wait to get to that. Habib Nurmagomedov liked my tweet about um, Sergio um, um, Ramos. Um, the Ben Saunders situation essentially just is sort of tragic that it played out the way it did where he just wasn't in a frame of mind to get back to them one time. Um, I feel terrible for him. He had a great run in the UFC. Three and one is nothing to sneeze at. You know, one of the wins against Chris Heatherly is Bellator-esque in the way in which the quality of the opposition is laid out for him. But, you know, nevertheless, Ben Saunders is an incredibly nice guy, a dedicated martial artist, a guy who trains hard and and has a ton of ability. And um, I don't know. Hopefully they can work something out and maybe get him back. I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do. But, you know. To, to come back to the UFC like for a second time the way he did and look the way he did, he should be very proud of himself. Very, very proud. Luke, I don't know how the media works in the U.S., but here in Brazil, it's an insanity. It's all about Olympics 24-7. Do you think that the promotion aspect of UFC 202 will suffer a little bit during the games? I don't. I don't. Um, I think it'll be winding down by the time that fight happens, right? So the fight's on the when is UFC two hundred two? It's the day after the Olympics ends, I think. Doesn't the Olympics end on the nineteenth? So it should be fine. But I could imagine things be a little bit crazier in Brazil, you know. Uh, UFC popularity in England. Luke, as an MMA journalist, what sort of impression do you get of UFC's MMA's popularity in England? I'm 23 years old, from England, and out uh, out off all my mates my age. I don't know what the hell that means. I'm the only real fan of the sport. It barely gets much coverage here, and with the UFC re-signing with BT Sports, I don't see that changing anytime soon. Had they signed with Sky Sports, by far the biggest sports broadcaster here, there would have been a real opportunity for it to grow as the gap between the two networks is massive. For instance, when Bisping became the first British champion, it did not get a single mention on Sky Sports, which runs a 24-hour sports news channel. Um, let me give a shout-out to two guys, Simon Head and Chamatkar Sandu. They do a podcast called The Brit Pack, which for someone like me as an American is an invaluable service to hear like two top-of-the-food-chain British journalists in England uh, giving us a perspective of what was happening, not merely in England, of course, Europe generally, and then you know stateside as well. I mean, they're not they're not ignorant about that at all. But uh, but you know, they really obviously have an expertise about what's going on over there. They have eyes and ears that we simply don't. So if you're curious about that and you're you're interested in an informative, you know, kind of fast paced podcast, uh, check out the Brit Pack. Those guys do a great great job. I love listening to it. I listen to every episode, and it's pretty pretty helpful. Look, I mean. And they go into detail about the benefits and the and the downsides of the BT Sport deal and everything else. So um, I'll leave that more complex analysis to them uh, as they have a better grasp of the of the issues. I think what I would say for me is just looking around. You know, Bisping's an interesting character, and I think you sort of nailed it before. Like he wins this championship and they don't say anything. Um, now he's going to go to Manchester, and I think he's going to headline um, this fight against Henderson, and I suspect it will do well, right? 
But I think here's the really interesting thing for me. And even with Conor McGregor's ascension, uh, we know that things in Ireland are still not all that great, right? With, with you know, Jean-Juan Carvalho dying, um, even recent attempts to get it regulated have been uh, repudiated, right? But I fundamentally believe that if you want MMA to change in England, there needs to be an English fighter that England embraces in the same way that they have embraced Conor McGregor. Now, look, I am not here to tell you in any capacity whatsoever that Michael Bisping is not British. He is British in ways I can't even begin to understand. Um, I am not in any way questioning his legitimacy. I do not think that the fact that he lives in Southern California ultimately changes a whole lot about it. I think that's much more complicated than that. I think the time in which he came up didn't allow for this. Um, Wolf Slayer wasn't prepared to give him what he needed to really move through his career. There's a lot of complicating factors about what's happened. But what I would say is, I think when you get a Ricky Hatton type, which is entirely possible, not necessarily out of, you know, um, any one city, Manchester, Liverpool, London, whatever. I don't, I don't mean a homegrown guy like that relative to just a city. But what I guess what I'm saying is when England lifts up its first native son or daughter, I think then you're going to see a switch, right? That's what, that's when everyone will galvanize behind it when, and I don't know who that's going to be. And I don't know when that's going to be, you know? Um, and I think guys like Dan Hardy guys, even, you know, uh, like Terry Adam and, Geez, I mean, you can go down the list of all the people who've come before who have done a whole lot. Ian um, Freeman and, and uh, to a lesser extent, um, um, who's the Moroccan? Um, God, you can see how bad my I had the worst on that sleep last night. Oh, my God. Um, Lightning Lee Murray. All, all these guys have, to an extent, paved the path. But there hasn't been that guy or that lady that really just took that country by storm. That's a very, very complicated, rare, almost lightning in the bottle kind of phenomenon. I mean, how many Conor McGregor's are there, right? How many Ricky Hattons are there? How many Ronda Rousey's are there? They are these are these are rare creatures. Um, and England, as much development as they've had in terms of the overall technical level of jujitsu and the number of academies and the best practices and the growth of teams and its reach into various places of the UK, you've seen good fighters come out of Scotland, Wales, the the whole nine. Um, it still doesn't have that guy and it hasn't had that guy. It hasn't had that guy come out who was a national icon as they got hot as a fighter. I really believe that the Conor McGregor lesson is like, how does a fight sport get popular in a country? There are going to be some countries where it's going to be a little bit easier than others. You know, the Philippines is going to be very easy. They've got many Pacquiao on the boxing side, which helps, but you get the idea, right? It's not, there's a strong martial arts tradition. They love that kind of thing. It's it's going to be relatively easy to do, to do events there over time. But to get a country to just, you know, to to be lifted and and galvanized together, it takes a very special talent. And I'm sorry, England just hasn't had that yet. Um, and we'll have to wait for that to happen. That, to me, has been the most important thing. Everyone's like, Mexico's going to be the new Brazil. It's not, <laughs> they, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but not least of which is they don't have anyone like that, you know. Um, Brazil has, when they got hot and, and when their economy was really booming in like, what, 2011, they had, I mean, legend after legend after legend at the ready to, to be promoted and available to fight on cards. And uh, they obviously had a rich tradition there of martial arts anyway, and it, it was easy uh, in that regard. Um, England lacks that right now.
And I think once you see that, so many perspectives will change. You'll be uh, you'll be seeing so many British fans being like, "This guy was in this magazine. This guy met, you know, look, we'll call we'll call this uh, British person, um, um, you know, <laughs> I don't want to be too too stereotypical. Um, how about um, William Smith? Right? Okay, okay, you almost be an American name." Uh, when William Smith blows up, you're going to be like, oh, my God, William Smith had dinner at 10 Downing Street, um, you know, or something like that. They'll be shocked at all the reaches that they put their tentacles into, and that will then begin to change attitudes. That's when Sky Sports is going to be like, hmm, you know. I think the BBC has come along a little bit, but even more than that, it takes this really powerful force to do that. And, you know, the slow movement of the... You know, attitudes changing about MMA over time, it happens at this glacial pace. But every once in a while, you can get someone like a Conor McGregor, which can be this like this true explosive growth, like a volcano all at once. Um, um, and England just hasn't had it. Someone says, the problem with finding an English fighter for everyone to get behind is that it's likely that it's not likely the Scots or the Welsh would get behind them. In fact... The Scots and the Welsh are far more likely to support an Irish fighter than they are an English fighter for multitudes of reasons. It would take someone on a Pacquiao Mayweather level to galvanize the UK into supporting them. Right. This is what I'm saying. We are not saying different things. I didn't say a UK fighter necessarily, although was the question about the UK? Yeah, to an extent about the UK. Uh, no, England. You know, I, I don't know to what extent um, the Welsh are going to support someone from Brighton. I, I don't know. These are questions I'm not capable of answering. But to me, England is a big enough economy, despite their outrageously dumb Brexit vote, um, to have an English fighter um, who really takes off. You know, and and and, and I, I I would be very cautious about saying this can't happen. Um, when it's going to happen, that's a very different scenario. Luke, I had a buddy over for the last UFC. He made a comment that Vaseline was used to reduce cuts, but also to reduce the sweat from going in the fighter's eyes. True or complete BS? It can if uh, it's thick enough, but ultimately that's not enough. What the hell? Um, it's a good question. It's one I've been thinking about. Hey, Luke, if Jordan Burroughs wins another gold this year at the Olympics, do you think he will be the greatest American wrestler of all time? So two names come out when you say the greatest wrestler of all time in America. A lot of people say it's Dan Gable. I think that is incorrect. Dan Gable might be the most iconic, but the most decorated champion is John Smith, who is the uh, University of uh, Oklahoma. Let's look up his wiki, shall we? And everyone gets better when you say it's like, no, Dan Gable's the best. Oh, my God. Dan Gable is much more of a legend and did some things that John Smith never did. Here is John Smith's wrestling resume. And I'm sorry, in terms of accomplishments, this is better. Pan American Games, 1987, 1991, he took gold at 62 kilos. At the World Championships in 1987, he took gold. In 1989, he took gold. In 1990 in Tokyo, he took gold. In 1991, he took gold. So he is a four-time world champion, two-time Pan American medalist, uh, gold medalist, 
Olympic Games, 1998, gold. 1992, gold. Two-time Olympic champion, four-time world champion, two-time Pan American champion. Um, let's see. Now, he didn't have the same kind of collegiate career that Dan Gable had. His collegiate career was 154-7-2. Uh, his international freestyle record was 105. His domestic freestyle record was 77-3. and But when it comes to collecting trophies, John Smith had done more. And, uh, you know, I, every time I say this, I get emails from people being like, no, Dan Gable did more. Check the resumes. He did not. Of course, you know, going without surrendering a point at the Olympic Games is incredible, taking gold. You know, losing only the one match in college is incredible. Obviously, what he did as a coach for Iowa is incredible. I am not here to tell you that he hasn't earned the adoration of um, millions and millions worldwide, frankly, or that he's not a first ballot Hall of Famer for the International Wrestling Hall of Fame. All those things are true. But if you're talking about the most decorated American competitor, um, that's where he is. Now, we asked, now where's Jordan Burroughs? Well, first of all, he would have to win another Olympic gold medal. So that would at least put him tied with that i'm not sure how many world medals he has well let's see so already he's got a bit of a problem so he's got two gold medals at the pan am games um and two at the pan american championships which are, which are different he's got three gold medals uh in 2015 13 and 11 he does not he got a bronze in 2014 he only has one so just to tie john smith he would need another gold medal in the Olympics and another gold medal at the Worlds. And then to beat John Smith, he would have to get some other kind of gold medal either in all the other three places. So um, he's knocking on the door, but he's not there yet. That's where we are with that. All right, it is 2.16. Let's go to the Twitter machine if we can. They call in me. All right. Uh, what are your thoughts on UFC dropping ticket prices for 202 since there are still so many unsold tickets? I, I'm not surprised, man. Look, UFC, uh, they know what they're doing, but sometimes I feel like I look at their ticket prices and, you know, I, I, I'm not rich by any standard, but I do okay. And it's way more than what I, I'm going to. I go, I'm going to a Paul McCartney concert tonight. Um, and the UFC tickets for like decent seats are routinely way more way more um they do charge a lot man i often tell people like if you get a fight night show that comes to your town you should go to that because you're gonna get you know mostly pretty respectable fights um you're not gonna get the same kind of star power but it'll probably be in a smaller venue you can see better and you can see a lot more high quality mma for a cheaper price like those big pay-per-views man they're expensive i'm not i'm not the least bit surprised i also think that won't necessarily have an effect on the overall pay-per-view rate either um who do you think will win between Sergey Kovalev and Andre Ward? Thinking Kovalev. Am I wrong? Bisping versus Hendo main event seemed stupid in England because apparently they were having it at 5 a.m. local time, right? Like they did with uh, Hatton and Costa Zoo. But this ain't Ricky Hatton. So um, we'll see how it goes. I don't know. I think it's worth the risk. I like the UFC taking risks like this. Very, very UFC to do this. The UFC always bets on themselves, you know, something you have to really kind of admire about them. True or false, you would watch the Jason Bourne movie again before watching WrestleMania. I would rather watch WrestleMania. Seriously, if I could, I mean, I cannot be, I cannot be more serious about this. The Jason Bourne movie is inexplicably bad, almost beyond my ability to command the English language to describe it. 
Um, if you like this movie, it is almost guaranteed it is because you fell asleep, you are lying, someone paid you to say that, you're trolling, or you are a simpleton. There really is no way to like this and say, I have a strong appreciation for excellent cinema. Does Connor talk so much trash to bigger guys because he knows he'll never have to face them? He talks trash to every guy. Do you think Alvarez really thinks Connor is a bad fighter or is he trying to create a story? Probably a little bit of both. Probably a little bit of both. Uh, fight picks, Gall or Punk? Gall. Diaz or McGregor? We'll see. What percentage of fighters pre-USADA were on something? I don't know. If you could make one fight in MMA, including cross-promotion matches, what would it be? Ooh, that's interesting. Including cross-promotion. That's a tough one. I definitely would make uh, Edgar McGregor. No doubt about it. Um, Cross-promotion? Askren versus uh, Wonder Boy. <laughs> wouldn't that be fun? You wouldn't want to see that? I'd see that. I mean, I would expect Wonder Boy to win that. But the amount of belly aching if Askren won would be astronomical. And the amount of glee if he lost would be astronomical as well. So, Can you add to Ariel's comments about the improvement CM Punk has made leading to his debut? I have not seen that. So what did he say? I cannot comment on them without having seen them first. Uh, Anders just died, man. So bad. I don't know what he said. Nothing on Twitter that I can find. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what to say. I mean, look. Let me let's let's talk about this for just a second, if we can. I'm seeing a lot of this going around. I'm seeing a lot of, um, you know, I respect his courage to get in there. Um, I admire, you know, the tenacity to get out there and do it, especially at 39, you know, he's old kind of beat up, um, you know, there's just this admiration for the process by which he's going through. And let me say on those terms, I absolutely share your sentiment. You know what, if you didn't know who he was and he was just Phil Brooks to you and Phil Brooks was just a guy going to a gym, trying to get an MMA fight and he was doing this and getting his ass kicked and trying to go through this in some ways it's being more magnified as a consequence of his, you know, celebrity, no doubt about it. Like his journey as a martial artist, I absolutely respect. <laughs> How could you not? How could you not respect his journey as a martial artist? It is commendable for him as it is for every other person who's out there trying. I've got teammates out there who get out there and bust their ass every day just so they can get an amateur fight a few few months from now because they want to test themselves as martial artists. Like, how do you not have respect for that? That is, you know, the, the Joe Rogan always talks about martial arts as the fulfillment of human potential, and he's absolutely right. That is exactly what that is. So on that level, I have not one bad thing to say about what he's doing. It is the most commendable thing. But that has fuck all to do with whether or not you deserve to be in the ultimate fighting championship. Somehow the NFL gets around this because Tim Tebow's suckiness 
will cost the fan base. And so the fan base rebels against it. They have that luxury. By aligning his success with the fan base's ability to enjoy the product, they then say, no, 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 we don't want that. In MMA, we don't have those kinds of consequences. So it just turns into this sort of entertainment space where they're like, well, we'll just watch this happen. This is not the Make-A-Wish Foundation. This is not Tebow time. Fundamentally, what this reveals, and we always knew this to be true, but this really sort of nakedly lays bare, because I saw that first thing. What's it called? The Evolution of Punk, The Ground Up. If you watch that, and like me, you're like, I respect him getting out there and running at 5 a.m. I get out, I'm not giving any spoilers, I'm making stuff up, but you know, you'll see there's lots of stuff of him there trying, man, he's trying. Like, how do you not respect that? That has nothing to do, nothing to do with whether or not this is someone who belongs in the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Either your product is where the best fight the best, or it is not. And if this is what you're going to do, it is not. And I have no interest in someone whose celebrity status comes from a world I know nothing about who can't fight at all. And I've said this once. I'm going to say it again. Everyone can talk about his improvement. What is it you think is going to happen? There, there is no magic. There is no magic when it comes to training. None. None. It is nothing but the amount of time you invest. You do not get UFC quality unless you are an outrageously good athlete in two years. It doesn't happen. There are guys at my gym who are... We got a guy in my gym who was a Division I football player for Boston College. He ain't ready for prime time. He's a purple belt in jiu-jitsu. He ain't ready for the UFC. And this is a Division I athlete. Trust me, when I roll with him, he is strong as F, too. This is, this is merely a reality show played out for you. And that they're using the Ultimate Fighting Championship, which is theirs to do it with, for this entertainment product, to me, is, is, is a non-starter. I don't want it. I don't like it. I'm not interested in it. I don't care about it. And frankly, I feel like it, it, it is insulting to the rest of the fighters. It's insulting to my tastes. It should be insulting to yours. There is no point to this. If he was going to any other fight organization, literally... World Series of Fighting, 1FC, Bellator, all the way on down, I would say not only positive things about his journey as a martial artist, I would say positive things about, about that effort with that organization. This is the one organization where that should not happen, ever, ever. And you can say what you want, like it's going to make a million dollars and all that. and uh, Yeah, fine. I'm not here to, to argue with what kind of box office results you might get. But that, to me, is the poorest argument imaginable for recruiting and promoting somebody like this. Oh, it'll do well at the box office. Does your organization have standards or does it not? And if so, what are they? And how much do they really matter if you're going to um, just outright repudiate them by signing someone who is not even, not even in the realm of discussion of prepared for this? It's it's this is this is not why I watch mixed martial arts ever. And the good news is you're allowed to have your perspective if you disagree, and you're allowed to say, um, you know, I don't think one bad apple spoils the bunch. I don't even see it as a bad apple. I like this guy's tail. I want to see it. Fine. Your opinion counts as much as mine does in this regard. It absolutely is true, and you're allowed to vocalize that. But I'm allowed to vocalize this side of the argument too. The idea that he's going to be you even even a fraction 
of UFC ready after two years of training at age 39 is laughable. It is not possible. That's barely enough time if your coach is generous to get a blue belt. Forget all the striking, which can be even harder to learn depending on what your aptitude is. Like, what are we talking about here? And yes, there have been MMA fighters who have been blue belts. That's because everything else they were good at was 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 significantly more advanced than that. They had some kind of ace in the hole. Uh, there is no ace in the hole. There is no magic here. He got he gets better over time. I would hope. That's not that doesn't mean anything. Everyone who trains gets better over time. That has nothing to do with whether or not we are meeting the common standard of excellence. And for me, that is sacrosanct, man. That is a line I don't want to cross. Like, if they cut Freddie Serrano tomorrow, I wouldn't cry about it. I don't, I don't care that he's Colombian. What he put on in terms of his striking was woefully bad. Either you're ready for this level or you are not ready for this level. And to me, I saw this reality show, and it's a decently produced reality show. I think it's the same guys who make... Um, looking for a fight, but there's dramatization in this that is selling you something that is not real. Nothing about this is supposed to be what reality exists. This is a reality show, which is very much about how something is supposed to look and not how it does look. And I don't care about that. I don't care about that. If you do, great. You already won the argument because this is already going to happen, but I am not going to take my foot off the gas on this issue. We need to uphold this standard. Having standards in an organization that is that purports itself to be the most elite place for the best athletes in the in this sport, keeping those alive and 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 having them, you know, having a reverential attitude towards them is critical for long term success. And I'm not interested in someone else's make a wish choice. It does not matter to me. All right, let me race through these. What's your expectations of the, the Magnificent Seven remake or Get Carter remake? Disaster will be decent enough. I have no idea. Do you bench on Saturdays to look good for the club that night? I haven't been to a club in probably 10 years. Uh, does the lack of diversity in the UFC infrastructure hurt the minority fighters' promotion, i.e. I don't know that it hurts them, no. What's the best and worst Rocky movie? And it, well, it doesn't help them, but it, it, I don't think that's why they're, you know, they, it, it, why they have struggles necessarily. What's the best and worst Rocky movie? Ooh, I don't know. Um, the most recent one, Creed, was good. Um, I think what Rocky Five is the worst. I mean, how do you beat Rocky One or Two? Those are the classics. Um, what's more likely, McGregor beats Diaz, Rousey beats Nunez, or GSP beats Woodley? GSP beats Woodley. Tainted supplements earn a suspicion. Tainted food does not. Double standard? That's a good question. I don't know how. I, I don't know. Um, I have to think about that. That's an interesting question. What do you know of Dylan Dennis, the BJJ guy that Connor has been training with his time around? Is he legit? He is super legit. Dylan Dennis is a beast. Go look at his run through the worlds at Brown Belt. He was leg locking and knee barring everyone and their brother, man. He is an incredible talent. He can do it all. He's got sick guillotines. He can take the back. He can invert and and, and everything, everything Dylan Dennis can do. In shape, never gets tired. He is phenomenal. 
I have, I have a lot of respect for the abilities of Dylan Dennis. True false. Aldo and Edgar rematch this year. Edgar and Holloway MSG. I have no idea. Should fighters be able to agree to a five round fight? Interesting. Um, that is going to be a promotional concern, but that's another question about whether you can ask about whether fighters have enough control over their own careers. Hoist was tapping monsters. If huge guy does not know BJJ, seems they would probably get tapped, right? Often, but Tang didn't know much either, and he was crushing people back in the day anyway. Ishihara gets a pass. This is his words, not mine, because he's an Asian import with broken English, thus making him culturally cuddly. If you say so. Uh, real last, lastly, um, how do Marlon Moraes stack up against Dominic Cruz? I don't like Moraes' chances, but I like him as a great addition to that division. Who wins in a five-rounder, Luis Suarez or Diego Costa? Ooh, Luis Suarez. Are you kidding? He's much more vicious. And lastly, about Real Madrid, I thought they did really well. I thought Hamas had a great game, and uh, Asensio is a beast, although he looked, he slowed down a little bit. And Morata has some problems, but we'll see. Uh, Sergio Ramos is a legend. All right. We have to go. Uh, I want to thank everyone for watching. Um, we'll have tons of content for you this weekend. I really appreciate it. Luke Thomas Show, 4 p.m. on SiriusXM, Rush 93. Please give us a thumbs up. You guys are the best. Check out the podcast. I'll have it up ASAP. Thank you so much for watching, and until next time, stay frosty. <laughs>